We're going to go to Song of Solomon, and I just want to do what we've been doing as we've been looking at this book. Uh, We see it as it is. It is a love poem, but it's also an illustration of the, the love that Christ has for His church. And I'm going to do what I've been doing all the time, look at it in those two ways. We'll probably be slightly shorter this evening, which is a, a, a promise because <coughs> we've got the baptism and so on. But uh, in the passage that we're reading up till now in this song, for those of you who don't know the song, what's happened is the one who's referred to as uh, the beloved is the woman, the one who's referred to in the NIV notes as the lover, is the man, King Solomon. And uh, so far, last time we got to their wedding night, and everything is bliss, except when we get to this chapter. And at verse 2, the woman says this, I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my lover is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. That's her lover talking to her. I've taken off my robe, must I put it on again? I've washed my feet, must I soil them again? Not every relationship goes well. Can we go on to the next slide, please? And this is a story of a lover's tiff. Now, some people think it's a dream. It doesn't really matter. It is a poem, and it's just really showing something that happened. And it's actually, when I, when I was looking at it, I never saw this, and I looked at every single one of the commentaries I could, and they all said the same thing, so I'm not going to disagree with them. But the scene that gets described is this. It's a scene of rejection. Basically, in verses 1 to 5, the husband returns home, and he's late. In fact, he's very late, because his hair is wet with the dew. So, he's been out working We'll give him the benefit of the doubt. There's no evidence he's been out partying. Basically, he's been out working, and um, he comes home (coughs) in the early morning. And the the woman is asleep, but her heart is awake. It's uh, uh, that kind of situation where you're asleep, but you're dozing in and out. You're moving in and out of, of sleep. And she hears him knock on the door. Uh, he's been locked out of his own house, or at least out of his own bedroom. And he wants to come in. And in fact, he's very charming. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. Not a scenario that you will hear too often as you're out in the street and someone knocks on the door. Open to me, my door, my, you know, my darling, my flawless. The more Scottish version was, open that door or you're in real trouble but he's being very charming about the whole thing. And he he calls her beautiful names. And what does she do? She says, basically, I've got a headache or the equivalent. She says, I've had a shower. I've taken off my robe. Do I have to put it on again? She's lying in bed. I've washed my feet. Must I soil them again? Do I have to get up? He's basically asking to come into the bedroom, and she is saying, no. Um, it's the, your dinner's in the dog uh, kind of attitude. It's the, I've got a headache, go away. And in the context of this poem, the, that is in the, <coughs> the idea there is one of rejection and of um, sexual rejection. She's just saying, no, I don't, I, I don't want you to, to come into my bed. 
whatever the reason for that. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 has an interesting uh, application of this in terms of marriage, where Paul is very blunt. He said it's good for a man not to marry. He thought in the current circumstances that the Corinthians were facing that marriage would create some difficulties, but he says in verse 2, since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all men were as I am, i.e. a bachelor, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now what Paul teaches there is really quite extraordinary because in that culture, the notion of the woman belonging to the man physically was literal. There's no such thing as uh, marital rape. But the, the reverse of that was not considered to be the case. And Paul says that. He says, look, you belong to each other. So he says you don't deprive each other. Physical intimacy is an important part of a married relationship, and Paul is just very, very blunt about it. He said, look, unless there's some special reason that you are fasting for prayer, then what you feel and what you want, you have to think about what your partner wants. And going back to the Song of Solomon, that is the situation that's happening there. The man is, is knocking on the door. The woman is basically saying, go away. And uh, being pretty selfish, actually. One of the, the writers on this quotes a little poem. Me, 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 I love myself. I have a picture, or I have my picture on my shelf. That a lot of us are very, very self-centered, and that does lead to trouble in the home. Proverbs 17 verse 1 says this, better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Proverbs 25 verses 23 to 24, as a north wind brings rain, so a sly tongue brings angry looks. Better to live on the corner of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. And I suspect, in fact I'm certain, you could reverse that and say it's better to live on the corner of a roof than share a house with a quarrelsome man. It's horrible when in your most intimate relationships between husband and wife that there is uh, uh, anger and bitterness and maybe even hatred and frustration and discouragement. With almost anyone else, you can get away from that. But you're living with somebody and you just can't get away from it. And the, the, the intimacy, that physical intimacy that sex is meant to express that's taken away. The opposite of that selfishness, which is reflected here by uh, the beloved, is the emptying of ourselves, is not putting ourselves first, is caring for our partner first. I remember one wedding I did, and none of you were there, so it doesn't matter. It was away from Dundee, away up 
Dunkeld or somewhere, somewhere really, really beautiful, in a beautiful cathedral. And it was two very definite, different families. One was kind of upper middle class, um, Edinburgh lawyers type thing, and one was um, Highland, Sutherland working class, and they split. I mean, one, the, the, this lot sat over here and this lot sat over there. And it was a very, very interesting wedding, and I taught from Ephesians, taught from the Bible. Most of the people there didn't normally go to church, so I made sure they got a good year's worth of sermons. Um, but I've never had such interaction before or, or since, really, from people, because afterwards, uh, lots of people came up and wanted to talk. It obviously had touched a raw nerve. And I'd said during the course of the sermon, it was about wives submit to your husbands and husband love your wives. And I said, please don't, if you're a husband, listen and say, listen for your wife and say, if only my wife was submissive like you're describing. And I said, please don't, if you're a woman, say, if only my husband was as loving as you're describing. Listen for yourself and ask, how can you be the best husband and how can you be the best wife? And it utterly amazed me that a couple came up to me in the midst of an absolute stormer of a fight uh, in this wedding. They weren't the couple getting married, thankfully. But they came up in the midst of this wedding, and the man said to me, you know, what you said was so right. If only she was more submissive to me and respected me more. And I'm standing there, my mouth wide open, the people around me are, are started laughing. And then she said, listen to him. If only he had a, an ounce of love in him, then our marriage would be a whole lot better. And it was just, it was, it was incredible, actually, and incredibly sad. Because... Who is the most selfish person that you know? From my point of view, I am the most selfish person that I know. And that means that in terms of our closest relationships, we have to watch out for that. She's rejecting him. Now, you see what happens in verse 4. <coughs> she changes her mind. My lover thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. Basically, she's mad with him, but she still loves him. Okay? And she's in basically getting really excited about him being there. And uh, she arises, I arose to open for my lover, my hands drip with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh and the handles of the lock. Now this guy is a real romantic. He'd left perfume on the locks of the door. That's what it's saying. He left this myrrh on the locks of the door. And she, but he's gone. I opened for my lover, but my lover had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him, but did not find him. I called him, but I called for him, but he did not answer. So, part one uh, th this of what is happening here is, first of all, there's rejection. Secondly, there's repentance. She's really distressed. Now, again, many people think that what happens here is a dream. It didn't really happen, verse 7, where she meets the watchman, and the watchman beat her up. You can, by the way, when you take illustration and analogy, you can take it too far. I read McShane's sermon on this passage, and he had the watchmen as being the ministers of the church. Um, I had no idea how he interpreted the ministers of the church beating up people who are looking for Jesus. Uh, but that is an interesting idea. But it just doesn't work. It really just doesn't work. But here, she goes out. She can't believe it. She runs out. She gets beaten, probably because the way she's dressed, she's regarded as a prostitute. Again, in these cultures, if you went out dressed like that, it's as if you were in Algeria or Iran or whatever, uh, and you dressed in a particular way, then there are men who would think they had a right 
to attack you and to beat you up, that you were just asking for it. It would be wrong. But here, is, whether it's a nightmare or whether it really happened, she's just absolutely distressed. They bruised me. They took away my cloak. Oh, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, if you find my lover, what will you tell him? Tell him I am faint with love. Tell him I'm really sorry. Tell him I want him back. Tell him I didn't mean to, to shut him out. Tell him I did a stupid thing. And then she says, tell him how wonderful he is. And she gives a description. Now, people have looked far and wide. There are lots of descriptions in ancient literature of beautiful women. There are very few of handsome men. And normally when you're describing a beautiful woman, um, sometimes I know that there are ladies who say, well, I'm not that stunningly beautiful, and they feel a wee bit depressed. Well, I now empathize with you because as I looked at this, I just thought, there's no way I can attach any of this to myself, but maybe there are some men here who, who think this. But anyway, this is how she describes him, and he's, how will I put it? In slang terms, she's basically saying, my husband is a hunk. You know, he's just a great guy. And this is how she describes him. She says he's unique, that he is, she starts with his head and works her way down. She says he's radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. He's glowing. There's, um, there's an implication there. It's not just physical, but his brightness of character. Uh, his head is pure as gold. Uh, he's sun-tanned, genuinely so. Not the orange tan that you get in Dundee from the sun parlors, but the real, he's, he's just wonderfully sun-tanned. Um, he's got black wavy hair. It's at this point I began to get somewhat depressed. Uh, he's, he has got eyes like doves, and in, in the context of this culture, that means that he's, his eyes are warm and passionate and kind. His, um, they're washed in milk, mounted like jewels. His cheeks are like beds of spice, and that's describing his beard because real men in that culture had beards. Uh, real men in this culture also have beards. No. <laughs> That's um, a, a sort of semi-beard, you know, but he had a real beard. And when it says uh, yielding perfume, he had a perfume beard. You know, now, we don't go there. I mean, if you, those of you who think man bags and male perfume is all kind of new, no, it's not. This is way back in Solomon's time, and she's saying, my husband has a perfume beard. I love smelling his beard. He has arms, or um, his lips are like lilies dropping with myrrh, and again, as we've seen before, that, that always, the idea of lilies is always associated with kissing. Uh, his arms are rods of gold set with chrysolite, probably actually meaning that his um, hands are... are He's got jewelry on his hands. He's got wonderful hands, and they're bedecked with jewels. And then this one. His body is like polished ivory decorated with sapphires. What she's saying is he's got the ultimate six-pack. That he, he's, you know, he's just absolutely the opposite of this. Um, he is, <laughs> he's, he's, just, he's just all muscle. You know, that's what, she, that, that's, that's what she says about him. There's no fat. He's fit and athletic. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as its cedars. He, he's got legs like tree trunks. He's all muscle. He's slim. He's good-looking. He's got black wavy hair. I hate him. No, <laughs> he's, he's just, 
she's, she's just so full. Now, some people reckon that she's exaggerating, that that's, that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Um, I, I, I tend not to think that because most of the ladies I know are not that blind and would soon be able to point out the various physical defects that uh, men may have. But what's interesting about this actually is just this, this notion, you, you get this kind of teaching sometimes, you know, men are from Venus or women from Mars or the other way around, I can't remember. And, you know, we all have different things and so on. And the idea is that men uh, like visual and women don't. Well, that's, that's highly debatable. And certainly here, this woman is saying, what is your, what's your husband like? How is your beloved better than others? And she's, she's describing him in, in terms of how much... Um, she finds him uh, attractive. But what is most interesting is in verse 16, where she says, his mouth is sweetness itself. He's altogether lovely. This is my lover, this my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. See, there's something very important in there too. Don't marry somebody who's not your friend. It's really important. Your friend is... Your, your husband or your wife has to be your friend. Friendship, uh, there's the attraction, there's the sexual attraction, there's everything else involved. There's the commitment, but there's, there's friendship involved there as well. So she repents, and then they're reconciled. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, first of all, the friends get involved uh, a third party being involved in a relationship is always dangerous, but she's saying, uh, they say, where's he gone? Which way did he turn? This wonderful man, let's find him for you. And then verses 2 and 3 basically describe their reconciliation. He's gone to work to get lilies. Some people think that that kind of idea that it's, uh, again, the image of a garden. <coughs> But what's probably really happening here, it's just describing them coming together again. It's a private, fruitful garden. It's um, reminding us that love has to be cherished like a garden. There's no offense in terms of his rejection. They belong together. I am my lover's and my lover is mine. He browses among the lilies. And it's, they, they, it's a picture of what often happens in many relationships that when you are close to somebody, you can hurt one another, you can reject, you can cause pain. There needs to be repentance and re renewal of the relationship, and there is reconciliation. And that's what happens uh, in this part of the poem. Now, you can take lessons, you can take as many lessons as you want from that but uh, I would just summarize them as this. In your relationships, be very careful not to reject the people who are closest to you. It's very, very easily done. It's very easily done. Don't hurt. If you find yourself in a situation where your relationship is going through a rough patch or you have a major fallout, which is ninety-nine percent of couples will have problems and difficulties at some point, then it does involve repentance 
from our selfishness. It's so easy to look and to say, well, my partner, she did this or he did that. And be reconciled. Be reconciled to one another. Make sure that what we saw earlier, the little foxes that get in and spoil. Make sure that that doesn't happen. Tim, and it's, it's not a coincidence that Tim and Bev are doing the um, marriage enrichment course that uh, goes on on Sunday before the evening service. And I think some of us, we think, okay, we may need help if our marriages are in real, real trouble. But quite often we may find that in actual fact, we actually need to work at our marriages before they get into real, real trouble, or they will. And I think that this acceptance of one another, this intimacy with one another, uh, and repentance for our selfishness, disrupting our relationships, is hugely important. Can we go on to the next slide, please? Now, let's take that at the, at the level of our relationship to Jesus Christ. And let me talk about it in terms of the... Again, for those of you who've not been here, we've been seeing that the illustration that's used most in the New Testament about the relationship between Christ and his people is that of a marriage. You don't come to the book of Solomon, uh, uh, the Song of Songs rather, and take everything as though, okay, what does this say about Jesus and try and work it all out that way. It's just an illustration. But I think these three things happen in our relationship with Christ, rejection, repentance, and reconciliation. And I'm just going to refer to three passages that, that deal with that. The first is rejection of Christ. I do think that we are, if you are a Christian, now first of all, if you're not a Christian, you are already rejecting Christ. And when we tell you about Jesus Christ and you refuse to come to him, you are rejecting him. And that's a big deal. And uh, I hope that as you witness Carol indicating her acceptance of Christ, that you would also desire to do the same. But the rejection that's been spoken of here is the rejection that occurs within the marriage, if you like, within the relationship. And it is very possible for a Christian to reject Christ. Now, I have to back off and explain it a little bit. We can grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. When we become a Christian and we call Jesus Lord, does that mean that Jesus inhabits us and we become like Christian robots and we do absolutely everything that Jesus says? No, it doesn't. It means that we have a growing and developing relationship with Jesus Christ. And there are times when you and I as believers, because we're hurt, because we're struggling, because we don't see, we turn away from Jesus Christ. McShane, in his sermon on this, preaching in this building in 1837, said about this passage, one of the chief reasons of your darkness is your want of considering Christ. Satan urges you to think of a hundred things before he will let you think about Christ. You see, just as in a marriage relationship, you can be so busy thinking about your work, thinking about what you're going to eat, thinking about what's happened to you during that day, because you live with your spouse, you can not think about them. You thought about them more when you didn't live with them. You thought about them more when you were courting them. You thought about them more when you got married. 
but there's a familiarity that comes in that can easily breed contempt. And the same thing happens with our relationship with Jesus Christ. Because we're past the first flush of enthusiasm of having accepted Christ, having been reborn by His Spirit, we can get into a habit whereby we think about everything else except about Jesus Christ. See, we know we should. So we can go to... Um, we can go to church, we can go to a Bible study, and we can say all the right words. But it is what we think about when we're in private that really indicates where we are at. And in terms of Jesus Christ, I, I, will, I will confess this, that I sometimes find it easier to think about the church, to think about all the different things that are going on, to think almost about anything except Jesus. It's like when uh, I first started going to church, sometimes I did find it a bit boring, and um, I, I wasn't a Christian. Even when I was a Christian, sometimes I did this. I would sit in church, and I would sit in a really hard pew so I couldn't go to sleep, not like the very comfortable chairs that you've got here tonight in the warmth. And I would think about the football match that had been on during that day. And so when I got older, sometimes I would think about what I was going to do. I'd plan out in my head what I was going to do during the day. I wouldn't think about Jesus. In fact, it seemed as almost as though there was everything that came into my head except Jesus. I couldn't identify with the psalmist who said, I lie on my bed at night and commune with God. And that's we, we end up rejecting. Christ speaks to us, and we reject. Now, that's why in Philippians 2 and verse 5, Paul writes, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He emptied himself, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why did Jesus do that? Because somebody had to break this barrier that's between us and God. And what Paul is teaching the people in Philippians, and it was two ladies especially who were having a fight, he's saying to them, look, you should have the same attitude as Jesus had. You don't do anything out of selfish ambition. You empty yourself. It's, it's not that you get rid of your personality. It's that you stop being so selfish. And he sets up Christ as the absolute and the supreme and the greatest example of that. And Christ empties himself, and Christ offers himself to us, and Christ knocks at the door, if you like. And what we do is we shut the door. We close our hearts. We say, we're not interested. Now, most of us are not that stupid in the sense of standing up and saying, I reject Christ. But by how we live, by what we say, by what we feel, we reject him. All day long, says God, I held up my hands to a stubborn and disobedient people. Jesus stands over Jerusalem, and he weeps over Jerusalem, and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you had known the time that the prophets would come to you. How often did I want to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks? but you wouldn't. You wouldn't. And I am absolutely certain 
that there are people here who are Christians tonight who's, who your, your Christian life is miserable and really hard because when Christ came knocking, you said no. You said, I've just gone to bed. You said, I've just had a shower. I've, you, you said, I'm, I'm too tired to be bothered with all this just now. When Christ came knocking, you said no. It is, is it possible for a Christian to reject Jesus? Yes, it is. It, it very, very much is possible. I think if we reject him, he doesn't reject us. But we really feel it in this life. The marriage is not ended. The marriage is not over. But the relationship is a tough one. And that's why you need the repentance. In Revelation 3 verse 20, you know the words, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, I will come in and sup with me. If anyone hears my voice, rather, sorry, and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. There's a repentance. Revelation 3.20 is not about people who are not Christians, who Jesus is coming and knocking on the door of their heart. It's about people who are Christians. It's about a church where people think that they are rich and wealthy and have need of nothing and don't realize that they are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And Jesus is coming and saying, you shut me out of your church. I'm knocking at the door. Repent and let me in. It is extraordinary that the one who flung stars into space allows us into a relationship with him which lets us reject him. It's extraordinary, but that is what happens. And we do need to repent. Now, you know, those of you who are in long-term relationships, you know what it's like when you've had, when you've gone through a bad patch, when you've had a big bust up, when you've had rejection, and then you repent and you become even closer. And I think sometimes the Lord allows that to happen to us as well in a spiritual sense where we thought we were doing great, we thought we were getting on fine with God, we've sailed along quite the way, and then all of a sudden we found ourselves, wait a minute, what have I done? I've been shutting Jesus out, just bit by bit. There's an illustration that C.S. Lewis uses, which is a great illustration in, in lots of different ways. He talks about how do you boil a frog, okay? And and the basic answer is you can't boil a frog by putting it into a pan of boiling hot water because the frog will jump out. But what you do is you put the frog into cold water and you gradually heat the water up until the frog doesn't notice it gets so hot that it's boiled. Now, there's a strange kind of way. How do you cause a Christian to lose their, their, their warmth and their relationship and their zeal and their passion for Jesus Christ? You don't normally, if you're the devil, dangle some great big temptation. Persecution doesn't work because it just encourages them. But what you do is you just gradually, 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 gradually heat it up. And before we know it, we find ourselves in a situation where we become very, very lukewarm. So there is a repentance that is needed. And actually, Martin Luther argued that repentance was something that you did every day. It was the essence of the Christian faith. You just come to the Lord and you say, Lord, it's me again. I'm growing cold again. I've done this again. I've done... And always Jesus says, come on, always Jesus. What Jesus will not do is impose himself upon us. But what he will not ever do to any of his people is reject us. Never, never. 
He bore us. And that's how you end up with reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 to 21, it's the whole message of the gospel is about reconciliation. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Carol's being baptized, that's what she's testifying. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore God's, Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I love the teaching about reconciliation. You're not a Christian. You are an enemy of God. You are estranged from God. Jesus comes, dies, offers himself to you, offers to bring you back to God. And for every one of you who are not a Christian, you must think about that this evening. But if you are a Christian, and you, you may be conscious, as, as I often am anyway, that well, I've got this relationship with God, but right now it's kind of as if I'm in a huff. You know what it's like when you're a young person? Maybe, actually, forget that. Old people go in huffs too. You just, we just go in a huff with God. We're in a spirit, Lord, you didn't do this. Lord, you didn't do that. Lord, this is not working. Lord, what about this? And, and there's an estrangement comes in. And the devil loves that. He loves to divide. He loves to cut us off from Jesus. And he loves to tell us, you had your chance, you were a Christian, you've really blown it, Jesus is not going to be interested in you. And all the time, there's a message which says, he's given us this message of reconciliation. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. We are reconciled, and we can be reconciled. So, even as you watch Carol being baptized, even as you're listening to this, I want to be like Paul in, in this passage in Corinthians and just to implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Don't go in the half with God. Don't say to God, I'm not going to talk to you and pray to you until what I prayed for before gets answered. Don't say to the Lord, Lord, you promised all this and then look what happened. Just Accept that Jesus is the fairest of 10,000, that he is altogether lovely, that he is absolute perfection. He will never let you down. He will never let you go. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never lie to you. He will never manipulate or twist you. He just wants you to open your heart to him. He's not going to force that. He really is not. He's not. He is not interested in robots. It's about relationship. And we don't have to make him love us. We don't have to make him like us. We're in this extraordinary situation where we just have to accept that he does love us. We just have to accept what he has done for us and get rid of all our pettiness and all our self-absorption and look to him and say, you are all together lovely. So much so that we want to go out onto the streets and we want to say to our friends, he is the fairest among 10,000. I saw a program, and with this I'll finish, I saw a program 
BBC Everyman, How to Get to Heaven in Montana. I've mentioned this a couple of times. I so wish I could find it. I've been hunting for it everywhere. Group of Amish, very religious people, pastor dies, his children and the young people in the Amish community in Montana go wild. By Amish terms, that means they go to the cinema and they drink caffeine or something. I mean, it really, when I heard you you think, but they did, they rejected um, a lot of their Amish tradition, but they still lived in the community. And then they attended a tent meeting and some of them became born again. And the community divided into the born agains and the traditionals, the ones who spoke Hoch Deutsch and the ones who had English and so on. And the pastor's son basically became the pastor of the born agains. And the BBC did this extraordinary program where they had a camera follow them for a year and look at this dispute within the community. And it was beautifully done. But there was one scene where the young man, he's... Um, you know, he's got the beard, he's got everything. I mean, he did look dead handsome as well. And, and um, he's, he's standing there, and the BBC reporter is asking him, she asked him this question. After talking about the various divisions, she said, what does Jesus mean to you? And I've never seen anything like it. This, this is 25 years ago, and I can still see his face as he told this answer. He said, Jesus. Jesus is my everything. He is my magnificent obsession. And his, his, his eyes filled with tears, his face shone with joy as he spoke of Jesus. And I just thought, whoa, I wish I had that understanding of Jesus. But that's what we want. He's altogether lovely. He is beautiful. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Bless it to us. Help us to understand it and to apply it. And bless us as we continue to worship and as uh, Carol is baptized, Lord, we ask that each of us here would know that you are the fairest amongst 10,000. For we ask in your name. Amen.